The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, good morning, everybody. A warm welcome to Squawkbox. It's Tuesday. You've got Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. So, uh, pretty much as expected, China cut two more key lending benchmarks for the first time in 10 months as authorities push ahead with monetary easing in a bid to boost the flagging economy. Staying with China, the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken calls for further dialogue after a meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping in a sign of potentially stabilizing ties between the world's two largest economies. We are clear-eyed about the challenges posed by the PRC. The United States will advance a vision for the future that we share with so many others. A free, open, stable and prosperous world. Intel signs off on a 30 billion euro chip manufacturing plant in Germany. The biggest ever foreign direct investment in the country as Chancellor Olaf Scholz stresses the need to de-risk from China. De-risking? Yeah. De-risking, yes. Decoupling, no. The G7 has no interest in impeding China's economic rise. And at the same time, we're looking closely to avoid dangerous economic dependencies. Airbus inks the biggest commercial aircraft order in history, sealing a deal for 500 single-aisle planes with Indian budget airline Indigo. The CEO, Larry Culp, tells CNBC when it comes to new aircraft sales, the sky's the limit. I don't think the need could be any stronger. You wouldn't have imagined this two years ago, you're spot on, but it couldn't be more bullish at the moment. You know this, this 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 conversation that we've had, you and I, the viewer, have had uh, with everybody around the set for for decades, and it, and, it, and it's about verbal intervention and real intervention, and, and, and verbal intervention or the intended intervention is a powerful force as well. The most powerful example of that was perhaps Mario Draghi saying, "I will do whatever it takes," and from then on. You had a put on the euro. You had a put uh, on the European economy. I will do whatever it takes. So, so, so actually the deed is important, but not always more important than the word. Well, this time around the deed, got to be honest, I think there's a feeling of being a little bit underwhelmed in some of these cuts that have come out from the Chinese central bank. I'll explain. So the Chinese central bank has cut rates once again, trimming its one-year loan prime rate by 10 basis points, just 10 basis points, to 3.55%. Now, the PBOC has lowered a basket of rates over the week in a bid to boost the country's flagging economy. Let's have a look at this as well. So 2% out of 1.9 on the seven-day repo, the one-year MLF, 3.65 from 3.75, and 3.55 now on the one-year LPR. Now, Citibank, just over here, I'll, I'll move over because it's, uh, they've made the effort to make this board, so I might as well give it a bit of time. Citibank has now joined a, a raft, or a swathe of central bank, a, a big pardon, of investment banks, uh, downgrading the GDP outlook in the past few hours. And, and herein lies my point, before we get to the, the second board, if you were expecting a cut, but actually it was kind of a little bit underwhelming, what are you going to do? 
well, this is what you appear to be doing. Let's have a look at some of these Chinese property stocks. Because if there is a crisis, and we've got an expert coming at the moment, so he can correct me. If there is an epicentre of the crisis at the moment, perhaps it has been and maybe still is the property sector. So the Chinese property stocks trading lower after this additional 10 basis point cut to the five-year LPR. A bit short of some of the expectations from the analysts. Uh, I think they were looking for something like 15 basis point reduction. Now that rate is a reference for the mortgages in the country's embattled property sector. All right, so there's a few other bits and pieces going on, but we'll come to all this with our guests in a few moments' time. So China and the US said that they would stabilize uh, and work to stabilize their fraught relationship. This after the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken secured a meeting with the Chinese President Xi Jinping on his delayed visit to Beijing. Both countries highlighted a willingness to hold more talks, though there is little prospect of a major policy shift on issues which Blinken said the two sides still vehemently disagreed over. But, but, speaking after their meeting, the Secretary of State highlighted elements of strength in their relationship. Our country's traded more over the last year, in fact, more than ever over the last year, nearly $700 billion. Healthy and robust economic engagement benefits both the United States and China. And as Secretary Yellen testified before Congress last week, it would be, as she put it, disastrous for us to decouple and stop all trade and investment with China. We are for de-risking and diversifying. That means investing in our own capacities and in secure, resilient supply chains, pushing for level playing fields for our workers and our companies, defending against harmful trade practices, and protecting our critical technologies so that they aren't used against us. Well, let's get to Sam. Sam, if ever there was a time to concentrate on China, it's the start of this show. And very nice to see you today, by the way. Um, talk us through all the key points. Well, I think, good morning to you, Steve. You get the sense from the Chinese side that perhaps beyond the cameras and the smiles and the handshakes and all the po positive sort of messaging we're getting from the press conferences and the readouts, that it's a bit too early to gauge the success of these meetings because you get a feeling that there is still a degree of scepticism, certainly um, on Beijing's part, because uh, they do believe that the US has previously been insincere in their negotiations and that they're saying one thing and doing the other. But it was a very good sign that the President Xi Jinping did meet with Blinken. And I think this was really being seen as a measure of achievement in terms of Blinken's trip. It was a 35 minute long um, meeting. So it wasn't long, but uh, certainly it is important. And I suppose that goes to show that progress uh, is not linear. And even Blinken pointed that out. He said that it's hard, it takes time, and it's not going to be fixed in a couple of meetings. But uh, really, as a barometer of the success of Blinken's trip, you could say it was that he got a handshake with President Xi, he got 35 minutes with him, and uh, he certainly made it very clear to the Chinese side uh, the difference between wanting to decouple and these accusations that they're trying to contain China and what they're actually doing with regards to de-risking and diversifying. So that was the very clear and I suppose the most important message they had for the Chinese. There was also um, a rebuff, you could say, of more military to military 
talks by China because they have worries about U.S. sanctions. Uh, from the U.S.'s side, there was a warning to Chinese companies uh, about uh, any sort of support with regards to tech going to Russia. But Blinken also, of course, spoke about Taiwan, which was something that China had reiterated over the weekend. Take a listen. I raised U.S. concerns shared by a growing number of countries about the PRC's provocative actions in the Taiwan Strait, as well as in the South and East China Seas. On Taiwan, I reiterated the longstanding U.S. One China policy. Uh, that policy has not changed. It's guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, the three joint communiques, the six assurances. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo by either side. We continue to expect the peaceful resolution of cross-strait differences. We remain committed to meeting our responsibilities under the Taiwan Relations Act, including making sure that Taiwan has the ability to defend itself. Do not support Taiwan independence. That coming off the back of a warning from Qinggang on Sunday saying that they would like the U.S. not to support independence because there is this view that perhaps uh, they are giving certainly signs with Nancy Pelosi's visit last summer to the island, um, certainly emboldening the pro-independence camp within Taiwan. Now, in terms of the considerations for the timing, of course, this is building up to a potential meeting between Biden and Xi later in the year, but it also comes off the back of China's slowing economy. There's been a huge emphasis on trying to attract that foreign capital, and of course we did see that cut to the loan prime rate. The market's uh, somewhat disappointed uh, with that, not meeting their expectations today, and so now the big thing to watch uh, is uh, what sort of more sort of targeted measures that the government is going to come up with. And the next thing to watch, of course, is the Politburo meeting that will be happening in July for some of those policy signals. Guys, back to you. Sam, thank you very much for that. We've got Andrew Collier with us, analyst at Global Source Partners. Andrew, we saw a lot of signalling yesterday. President Xi Jinping rolling out the red carpet effectively for the Secretary of State in an area usually reserved for heads of state. This meeting taking place in the Great Hall of the People, suggesting that the American was very much a VIP. What does this tell us about the direction that we're going to see relations go in on the downing of that balloon that seemed to just cause a massive reset, not in a good way? Well, the downside risk is is terrible for both countries. Obviously, you could have a flashpoint in the South China Sea. So that's what I'm most happy about, that they met, and hopefully they'll have some other meetings that will try to keep the engagement so to avoid the possibility of having a war in that period. In terms of trade relations, the U.S. is now indulging in industrial policy. The Chinese don't like that. They don't like that direction. So they'd like to try to soften the outlook uh, and the, the shape of the U.S. policy. It'll take a while, but I see the direction as being positive. How do we read the negotiations from here? Because already China refused to engage with Washington on the re-establishment of military-to-military communications. These are important communications, so there's no accidental issue that takes place with both sides. Uh, But the Chinese were saying that uh, with certain sanctions in place, they can't tackle this issue. So it feels like they're tying the commerce and the military issues together now. My feeling is that there's some back-channel communications going on with the military. That's what I'm hearing from some of my sources in Asia. And in terms of the uh, trade relations, I mean, the U.S. has definitely has to moderate its stance and provide some positive guardrails for China going forward. The Congress, unfortunately, is not so is pretty hard line about these issues. But I think within the Biden administration, they are definitely interested in trying to give some carrots instead of just sticks.
Oh my goodness me. Good morning, Andrew. You've gone from carrots and sticks to butter and guns. So uh, I'm going to go to the latter, if I may. Now, you're, you're looking at, when I, when I say butter versus guns, it's something which a lot of our viewers will be aware of, but you, you've pointed out in one of your more re recent notes. And this is about domestic spending on key domestic issues, whether it be, dare I say it, butter or social welfare in this case and what have you, versus defence spending as well. What is the significance of that piece? Well, a lot of people see China's rise as inevitable, but those of us who follow the economy closely are very concerned about the future direction. They have no growth anymore. They squandered way too much money in the property market. They have a huge debt problem. Their tech sector was cut down to size, which was a political act. And they stopped the property bubble on purpose because they're worried about a Japan trap, like decades long slowdown, which I, I admire the country for doing that. But they have nothing to replace any of this stuff. Artificial intelligence is not going to do it. Semiconductors, which they're pouring 600, maybe a trillion US dollars into, is going to take a long time to come to fruition. So those of us who look at it and say that, you know, Xi Jinping's got a very weak hand right now mm. to deal with negotiations with the West. Very interesting, uh, having read some of your stuff on this one as well, but also people like George Magnus who have been pointing out the, the, the concerns of the middle income trap. And this isn't just something that happens to uh, a country the size of China. It can happen to any frontier, then to developing, to emerging nation as well. How concerned should the Politburo be, the CCP, the, the, the leadership be, that actually they've got to an economic stage and then, as you point out, the key props of further growth, whether it be export growth, whether it be domestic property growth, whether it be technology growth, actually it's just stopped, it's, it's skidded to a halt, and then you've got a, a population that never got to the wealth level. And I'll use as an extra example on that, I think, and I correct if I'm right in this, the latest youth unemployment data, I think came in at 20.8%. That's, that's correct. There's a bitter battle going on within the upper echelons of the government on this question. And a lot of the spenders want to spend money and go back to the old days. However, the central bank, the PBOC, has been very steady on this issue. Don't inflate the bubble because it'll cause more problems than it's worth. So, so far, uh, Xi Jinping has listened to the advice from his former economics guy, Liu who is out of office, and from the central bank, Egon, the, the, the central bank governor. They've stuck to their guns. Um, but their advantage, of course, in China is that they can suppress people. They control the messaging. They can control lots of local activity. The question is, how bad will it get? And will they have to reverse course at some point and go back to the bubble days? You pointed out that uh, banking crisis is a potential here. And after we've just seen issues that reflect the banking crisis in, in quarters of the West, obviously uh, that really captures the attention. How far away could China be from a banking crisis, even as they cut lending rates today? That's a very debatable issue. I, I tend to think that they are closer than many people think to a banking crisis. Now, obviously, they control much of the system. They own it. They have uh, capital controls, so they have a lot of control over the, the system, more so than in the West. On the other hand, uh, they have trillions of debt in the property market that they can't, they have no way of growing out of the way they did 10 years ago. So that is going to impact about 30% of the assets of the banking uh, system at some point. What's the trigger for that? I think lots of defaults, it'll start to mount up and then some of the banks will start to fail. Maybe not a massive crisis like the United States had. Uh, oh gosh, I've got so many questions for you. you. You said something fascinating. You said they can suppress people as well, but they can't make people spend more money. They can't make 
the families grow larger by by forcing them. And a lot of Chinese people aren't just reading around the signs, and you know this, but aren't necessarily that keen on growing these huge families now to address the demographic issues as well. They, they can't force people into the jobs they don't want to go into. And then you've got this problem moment where you've got tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of very, very qualified graduates who are just not finding the jobs they were promised as well. How big are these social issues despite that suppression you mentioned? Well, the, the, it's just beginning now because you had the COVID controls, uh, the opening has been slower than people thought, and now you have governments that are running out of money. So it's starting to mount. Um, but you're absolutely right. They can tell people not to do to protest, but they can't convince them to spend. These Chinese are not stupid. They can see what's going on in the economy. They can see their friends don't have jobs. The gig economy is now starting to peter out because it's been cut back severely and there's not a lot of people ordering food online. So they're at the point now where they're, they're holding their, their fire. And so the consumer, uh, which is less of the economy anyway in China, because it's mostly state-run investment, is just not that dynamic. This is very different to what the world is used to, a very hungry Chinese consumer that wanted to effectively eat up everything you could see in the luxury space to, to Western products coming into the country. The narrative on the ground now is also slightly anti-Western labels that some of the younger consumers are opting for home-growing names that they also feel attached to. Uh, the other part of this leg seems to be luxury is bad now to wear to work. We had uh, a report that crossed yesterday. The big banks were saying, do not wear expensive items to work because of the signaling function. Add to that, the fact that some of the local Chinese produced goods are fantastic now. Well, like like, like um, Phil LeBeau was telling us about their cars, some of their electric yep. vehicles. Cosmetics yeah, as well. Some of them the are cheaper than, say, the, the European label brand. I, I, you know, the watch business has done very well for the Swiss, so they're still buying luxury goods. Rich people are protecting their money, so they're okay. Car industry, the Chinese are blowing it out of the, out of the water. There are going to be major competitors going forward because they've been investing in this a long time. Uh, but you're right, a lot of the consumers, the uh, people in the smaller cities are hurting big time. Uh, we make no apologies. We're hogging you a bit longer than we intended because we just find this conversation absolutely fascinating. I've got permission from An uh, um, Adam in the gallery, which is no mean feat, and, and Brittany as well. Yeah. Uh, so Adam tells me. Um, so, so one more question for you. What does this mean geopolitically as well? The softening um, is very interesting. Does that mean that actually if the US and the West find some degree of rapprochement with China, and I say degree of, and the wolf warriors calm in and rain in a little bit, which is another point you've been making as well. Does that mean bad things potentially for Russia? For Russia? Um, the reason I ask Russia, because of course, China perhaps the most stalwart, quiet right. um, backer of Russia, and, and this whole fear of an authoritarian access against, access against the West. No, no, I, I don't see that at all. China has actually been pretty good about adhering to sanctions. The banks have been backing away from certain deals with Russia because they don't want to lose access to the U.S. dollar market. So I don't see an axis of evil the way that we had 20 years ago with Russia no, happening no, at all. The, the, some parts of the, the right-wing establishment in the, in the West uh, fear there is. Look, um, we have loads more questions for you, but we can't ask them because we've already asked about 16 minutes of questions. So we're going to have to leave it there. Lovely to see you in person. Thank you very you reckon much. it's been a few years, yeah? Yes, it has. <laughs> well, enjoy the London sunshine. It's a rarity. I think we're due to rain today. Uh, Andrew Collier, who is an analyst at Global Source Partners. Well, there is a lot going on the markets as well. I just mentioned to you already that the Chinese property developers uh, ha have lost quite a bit of ground uh, on the back of concern. Actually, the cuts weren't quite as much as, as hopeful. But net-net, very interesting, Karen, the Shanghai Composite 
hasn't really lost any ground. It's trading around the flat line. Yeah, that's right. Uh, slipping about four points at this hour, about a tenth of a percent on the Shanghai Composite as we hold out around the 3,251 mark. For the other major markets, Australia actually trading firmer, nine-tenths uh, the size of the pop. Hong Kong stocks trading down, and perhaps that's a reflection of the storytelling we're just saying around uh, the China property market. Some of those listed entities on the Hong Kong market, 300-odd points down, 1.6% in the red. And it is a downbeat session for the Japanese stock market. Uh, this is somewhat unusual. We've seen uh, this market very much on a tear. The uh, gains taking it around a 33-year high. But uh, there's just a little bit of caution settling in, a bit of profit-taking at this stage. And some people look at the short-term indicators. Even that uh, said, as Warren Buffett uh, snapped up more stocks yesterday, some of those names still proving supportive for the stock market, which is why you're still seeing uh, the market only down slightly at this stage. Those trading houses that Buffett has again loaded up in uh, that has uh, pushed the market high from here. Let me take you to the dollar. A congressional uh, hearing from Jay Powell closely watched later this week. A dollar has uh, proven just a little bit firmer morning session versus a sterling euro. Both are slipping more than a tenth of a percent. Dollar gaining versus the Japanese currency trading up to the 142.12.13 handle dollar firmer versus yuan too. To the commodities complex, uh, this is how WTI Brent and crude uh, trades are this morning. We've got about a third of a percent down on Brent. WTI crude is actually down even more, although still holding that 70 handle as it drops 1.4%. Gold trades, the safe haven play, is also just in reverse at this stage. I want to take you to the opening calls. We had a somewhat downbeat session uh, yesterday across the European markets. This morning, you can see we're trapped in a very slim range with red arrows, but uh, looking somewhat flat across the core markets. This is we waited out for some U.S. action later on today. U.S. has been closed uh, for Juneteenth. And the market is uh, at this stage, as we take a look at U.S. futures, counting us down to the session. The early indications are for a slight move into the red. This, as uh, investors uh, had a fairly decent trading week last week, despite the Fed, of course, uh, going into pause mode in the market, trying to second guess what comes next. And, well, we'll get some great clues on, I think it's Wednesday and Thursday, two days of congressional testimony from Mr. Powell as well. Uh, Obviously, everyone will be pouring over every word as usual. Now, we've spent a lot of time talking about the US-Chinese relationship. What about the relationship between Germany and China? Well, they're looking for a reset as well as the Chinese Premier Li makes his first overseas trip to Berlin. We'll bring you the latest from the German-Chinese summit coming up next. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Intel has announced it will double its investment in Germany, spending over 30 billion euros to build two semiconductor factories in the country. It's the single largest foreign direct investment in Germany's history. Berlin has reportedly agreed to give Intel 10 billion euros worth of subsidies as part of the deal, over 3 billion euros higher than its initial offer. 
German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and Chinese Premier Li Chang have met in Berlin for dinner ahead of the seventh joint German-Chinese government consultations being held later today. It is the latest bid from Berlin to ease tensions with its largest trading partner and relaunch bilateral talks after a three-year hiatus during the pandemic. Scholz said Germany must de-risk from China but not decouple. The G7 has no interest in impeding China's economic rise. At the same time, we're looking closely to avoid dangerous economic dependencies. And the fact that the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is now in China is a good sign of a much-needed normalization of relations. This does not mean that there are no longer any issues to discuss, that there are no differences of opinion, which are obvious. Let's get out to Annette, who is in Berlin for the Day of German Industry Summit, where ministers for trade and corporate leaders are gathering. Annette, the Chinese are on somewhat of a charm offensive. First uh, stopping off in Germany, next stop will be France. But is this actually going to make a difference when the Germans are very determined now to, to de-risk from uh, the Chinese supply chains after what they've witnessed around the energy situation when they've been too dependent on Russia? Yes, exactly. I think it's a very difficult situation because, of course, China is super important for German, for the German industry. You see that because it was also a, a topic here on the agenda at the TDI, the German Industry Day um, here in Berlin. But also uh, the fact that um, the Chinese premier was actually meeting more than 10 DAX CEOs yesterday afternoon here in the city of Berlin to have tea with them. Among them, or, uh, among others, was the Volkswagen CEO but also SAP CEO. So, uh, yeah, like the average, uh, or, or like, um, I would say, um, DAX CEOs in general are super interested to know where the Chinese industrial policy is headed. Because recently we heard about an Information Reduction Act, for example, in China, where, for example, uh, U.S. consultancies are no longer allowed to take information out of the country. And that would, of course, mean as well, potentially for German companies, a huge threat to their operations on the ground. So uh, the head of the Machinery Association here in Germany is saying that this is the biggest single threat to German corporates, that the, um, that the Chinese industrial policy is getting more national. So I guess this is like the backroom, backroom talk here in Germany um, and also here at the TDI. Of course, um, the energy crisis as well, very high on the agenda yesterday here at the TDI because energy prices make companies like BASF and others move their operations outside Germany. We have energy prices at record highs worldwide here in the country because of course of the transition from cheap Russian gas into other sources of energy and also the electricity prices are depending on that gas price cascade. So essentially when I caught up yesterday with the um, CEO of, of RWE, one of the biggest uh, electricity producers here in the country, I had to ask him where we stand in terms of energy supply, electricity, electricity supply, also given the fact that more and more electricity is actually um, demanded because we have that move into electrification of nearly everything also in the industry. So take a listen of what he had to say, where are we standing here in Germany when it comes to electricity supply and also security. The problem why we need to accelerate the renewable build-out is that we don't have enough energy, we don't have enough electricity and that is of course also causing the high prices. 
because our energy supply is massively underinvested. We have for years predominantly discussed closures of nuclear and coal stations, um, but we have not enough had enough emphasis on the build out, and that now needs to be accelerated. If you say that we don't have enough energy, is there a real risk that uh, Germany will fall short of energy supply? No, I don't. I don't see that there is an imminent risk of blackouts because the system overall is very stable. Um, and the grid operators have everything under control. But of course, the high energy prices cause uh, deindustrialization. So the supply, uh, which is not sufficient, has an effect on the demand side. And that, of course, is, um, is a big problem for the, for the industry. Um, is the industry. What is the industry taking as measures or as steps as, as a result of those high energy prices? We have already seen last year when we had the, the gas crisis, that gas consumption industry was down, industry was down 20%. Of course, they try to do everything which is possible on energy efficiency, but we have also seen production moving outside Europe. Um, looking at the high energy price, electricity price, is that in your view here to stay for Germany and will actually mean that will be that's a massive competitive disadvantage? I mean, if you look at where we are today, where prices are still significantly above 100 euros per megawatt hour, I think that is not there to stay. If we have um, deployed all the capital and done the investment in new renewables, but also in backup capacity like H2-ready gas plants, power prices will be below today's level. So to give you a comparison of what actually was promised during the last election campaign, that was four cents per kilowatt hour by Chancellor Scholz. So that compares to the now hundred. And that gives you an idea of how burdensome that electricity price must be for the German industry, especially for those high energy users like BASF, but also others. The chemical industry needs a lot of energy, but not only them, also the Mittelstand companies who are producing glass or other components which are desperately needed uh, in the car space but also in the construction space so I guess this is a very crucial topic also in terms of competitiveness going forward here at the TDI um, the German day of industry or German industry day there are other topics of course also high on the, the agenda we were talking about the Zeitenwende when it comes to defense of course defense spending a huge topic here in the country but also so what are we doing about AI? That will be a big topic here today. And also the, the, the sheer fact of keeping competitiveness, given that Germany seems to be lagging behind all the big industrial nations when it comes to economic growth. So it's a packed day ahead of us. And I keep on bringing you uh, news from here on the ground in Berlin. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.